This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we spoke with Dr. Monica Agarwal, who is a board-certified cardiologist and adjunct associate professor in the University of Florida's Division of Cardiovascular Medicine where she conducts research on the impact of nutrition and chronic illness. She also serves as the chief medical officer of the not-for-profit Four Roots Farm, which is looking at how to improve food quality to improve human health. Dr. Agarwal's own path to understanding the impact of nutrition and illness started with her own journey, which she will share details about in this podcast. Through learning about the microbiome, its impact on the immune system, and the role of nutrition in affecting the gut, she was able to truly heal and became determined to change the face of medicine. Dr. Agarwal gives talks around the community, country, and internationally. She was named a Next Generation Innovator by Cardiology Today. She is the author of the book Body on Fire, How Inflammation Triggers Chronic Illness and the Tools We Have to Fight It and Body on Fire Cookbook, which provides whole food, healthy recipes to help implement change. Today, we chat about the state of heart disease in the U.S., what heart disease is, and why nutrition and lifestyle is so important in preventing and treating heart disease. Dr. Agarwal is a wonderful teacher and explains concepts well, so they are digestible and actionable. Lastly, we end with hope, which is the theme of her podcast, Seeking Voices of Health healing and hope. This was a wonderful conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Now onto the podcast. Hi, Dr. Agarwal. It's so wonderful to have you on our podcast today. I'm really, really glad we got to meet in person a couple of weeks ago um, and I'm excited to learn more from you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and in a warmer climate. So, you know, as you mentioned, um, we just met in um, Philadelphia, close to Philadelphia, and it was so cold. I was, uh, I literally was shaking with, with cold. <laughs> it's like 60 degrees here and I'm in a scarf, so. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. So you can see I'm, I'm not, I'm in a, I'm in a half sleeve shirt and this is where I like to roll is always all year round in half sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you are, um, focused on a more holistic view, um, and treatment for cardiology and for illness in general. So what was your journey to discovering the importance of nutrition and lifestyle and illness? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's interesting. So I'm Indian by birth. So I think that maybe my whole life I've always thought or considered sort of that there's more to, a medicine or to health than just uh, the medicines we give people. And um, one of the things I've reflected on recently is that my grandfather was a doctor. And actually, I don't tell the story often because, you know, just I've been thinking about it recently about where I started. And my grandfather was a doctor and he, um, 
he used to, people used to pay him in mangoes or whatever they, they actually had to pay him. They would pay him in, and it wasn't always uh, money and people would come to his house and he would be in, and really always focused on nutrition and lifestyle. So maybe it was always there. And, you know, culturally, as an Indian person, Ayurveda and sort of the concepts of sort of holistic health have always been sort of maybe always kind of pervasive through my life. Um, You know, growing up and born and raised in America, you know, you you're you're taught to um, you know, our goals are to go to medical school and, and become doctors in the allopathic tradition. And sort of some of that, that old stuff, your history and culture gets washed away. Sadly, it's interesting, actually, we did a survey of medical students in the first year versus the fourth year. And we found that first year medical students are super motivated and interested in nutrition and lifestyle. But once they go further on in their career, it becomes less and less of an interest. And it's almost like we've washed it out of our medical students and so many of us have gone through this sort of traditional allopathic um, medical way. And it's incredible. We have an incredible health system and training system in the United States, and we can't forget that. But with that comes a real significant focus on medications and so um, and sort of treatment of disease instead of prevention of disease. So I think that, you know, my story began a long time ago, and I started, I did a little bit of integrative work with Andy Weil um, and his program at University of Arizona, um, but it really didn't. And and even when I was a cardiologist in practice for years, I focused a lot on prevention. I used to, used to do community screenings uh, for patients. I would run uh, cooking events where we, ch- it's interesting, we would do these cooking events. And if I made them free, uh, people wouldn't show up. But if I charged them even $5, uh, people would come in mass. And there's that, you know, a lot, a little testament to ownership or sort of having skin in the game uh, in that comment. Um, So I would always do those kind of events, but around um, after I had three kids in succession and they were, so at one point I had three children under four. And so I had sort of this crazy life where I was working as a full-time cardiologist, running, raising three kids, nursing, pumping, going crazy, taking care of everything, feeling like I had to be superwoman. And in that time, you know, I had a breakdown of my own health. And so I sort of went from being this very active, highly controlled and controlling person to losing total control and getting very, very sick, very, very fast. And I think it's when you go through a moment like that, where you realize that when you lose control and you start saying, when people start, you have to become the patient. And when people start telling you and doctors start telling you that they're, you have an incurable illness or that you'll be a medicine for the rest of the life, you start really realizing, uh, certainly for me, I, I thought there's there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more to this picture, which started my journey sort of more aggressively um, focused on nutrition and lifestyle at that time. Thank you for sharing your story. I I would love to touch on what Ayurvedic medicine is, because um, I think that term right now is thrown out a lot in the wellness community. Um, and so could you just explain like what some of the tenets are of Ayurvedic medicine and, and where it really does originate from? So, you know, it's a good question. So, you know, Ayurvedic medicine is thousands of years old. You know, uh, you know, the Ayurvedic, the Chinese medicine cultures are all, you know, four or 5,000 years old. And Ayurveda started in areas of India, I think Nepal. And in that, they focused a lot on herbal therapies, um, foods, cleaning out the colon, special diets, massage, yoga. So a lot of the sort of 
the baseline tenets of an integrative practice actually come from things like Ayurveda and Chinese herbal therapies and Chinese medicine. The problem we have and the reason that Ayurveda or the problem we have is, is that this there's not a whole lot of science behind some of the therapies that are recommended. And so it just becomes very tricky. And I think that that's the key for us as doctors is to know what is real science, what we know and what's backed by data and what isn't. And so some of the stuff that is being advocated in an Ayurvedic tradition isn't necessarily bad, but it doesn't also have data associated with it. And something I pride myself on being is data driven. And so if there isn't data on it, I'll tell, I'll say, well, there's some historical data that shows this, but I don't really know if it works. And I think that that's really important because there's so many people out there um, right now, especially because wellness and uh, prevention have become such, um, you know, taglines or, and there are so many people that are entering into this space, which have, who have very little knowledge about nutrition, don't have a medical background and no disrespect. It's just that we have to sort of take I'm never going to be somebody who's going to recommend something just because. And so, for instance, I see wellness therapies going on right now that are based on quote quote unquote tradition that are IV vitamins or IV therapies. And these things are considered sort of uh, people are going and they're paying good money for these therapies and there's absolutely no data to support them. And so when you bring up Ayurveda, I feel mixed about it. And that's why I bring you up this sort of long path because Ayurveda and Chinese therapy and Chinese medicine have so many good basic tenets, but we just have to be careful what we pick and choose and make sure that the things that we're, that we're advocating as physicians are based on some data. And I think that that's the key. And I think that what happens with some of the um, people call some of these older therapies and older traditions you know, uh, some people are using them and saying, well, you not, must do this and you have to clear your chakras and you have to, and these are the ways to do it. And you have to take three laxatives and you have to do this and this is going to work. Well, I don't know if that's going to work. And so I just think we have to be cautious at the same time. I also don't want to put these kind of therapies down because I think that there's four or 5,000 years of history and much of it is anecdotal. I'll be, albeit, um, but it's still important, you know, and it's important because, some of these therapies we could learn a lot from. And I think our job as doctors in this age are to do a lot of studying and trying to understand which of that is validated and and is effective and which of it isn't. That was kind of long winded. (laughs) No, I really appreciate that. That's why um, our podcast is called The Nuance. And I so appreciate having folks like you come on and really explain that because it can be so one-sided like Ayurvedic good, allopathic bad. And so just explaining the nuance of exactly like what you're doing and how you're treating um, to best practices. Yeah. So I would love to dive into um, heart disease. Uh, So you're allopathically trained, you're a board certified cardiologist. Mm -hmm. And I just love to start out with the basics and outline the prevalence of heart disease in the U.S., First of all, what is the prevalence? How has it changed in your practice um, since you started? And why also should younger generations care about heart health, even if they're not officially diagnosed? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, heart disease is the number one killer of men and women in the United States and in the world. And while our therapies have gotten better, medical therapies, stenting procedures, 
have gotten better. And so the mortality associated with heart disease has definitely improved, but the incidence of heart disease continues to be extremely high. So an incidence meaning that people continue to still get a heart disease. And so remember, heart disease is a multifaceted problem. And so in when we use this umbrella term, heart disease, people often wonder, what does that actually mean? So as physicians, as cardiologists, we typically mean coronary artery disease. So artery disease, meaning the member of the heart's a pump and it has these coronary arteries on it and they just kind of sit on top of it and their job is to feed the heart. And so that's really important because the heart, if the heart doesn't get fed with blood, then the heart doesn't pump and then blood doesn't go out to the rest of the body. So I think sometimes that that even needs to sort of be very clear. So the coronary arteries are arguably some of the most important arteries in the entire body, right? And so, um, because if those get clogged over time, that's what leads to things like heart attacks. And I'll explain that a little bit. So heart disease, when we talk about this umbrella term heart disease, while it technically could cover any facet of the heart, it could be a valve problem or an electrical problem. Most of us, when we say the word heart disease, we're talking about clogging of the arteries. And so, and when we say that heart disease is the number one killer of men and women, we're typically talking about uh, coronary artery disease and it's really cardiovascular disease technically. And, and, you know, there's so many little nuances there that don't need to be for, you know, no, don't need to be hashed out. But for the, for the bottom line is, is that we're typically talking about those coronary arteries that sit on top of the heart. So, you know, when you're born, those blood vessels are very soft and they have beautiful, they're pink and beautiful and that's important because they 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 have these really beautiful endothelial cells, which are the cells that are closest to the blood. So, like if you fillet open a blood vessel, they are the they're what you first see on the top um, where the blood just kind of slides over. And those endothelial cells are really important, along with the entire wall of the coronary artery. But their job is to dilate the blood vessel when you need more blood, and then to shrink down the blood vessel when you need less blood. And what happens to people over time is, is that when they have pick up habits, unfortunately, like high, high um, smoking or um, eating um, poor quality food or in eating uh, an excess of calories or too much quantity of foods that are poor quality, then they gain weight. Then with that comes, you know, diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And so these are all risk factors for heart disease. And so what happens is, is those blood vessels, which are soft and, and pliable, they get damaged. And that endothelial layer, which is job is to dilate blood vessels, gets damaged. And people call that endothelial dysfunction. And so what happens is then is the blood vessels don't dilate as much and they get damaged. And eventually that becomes a nidus for plaque or, or a space where plaque will form. So I will sort of simplistically explain it as if you have a blood vessel and it gets damaged and you get like a little crack in your blood vessel and then the body says, oh my gosh, I have a crack in my blood vessel. So it sends the platelets over to that crack uh, to heal it and put a scab on it. And so that little scab gets put on the blood vessel inside the little circle of the, of the artery. So you get a little scab there and it's that scab that becomes where then the cholesterol slides by and other fibrin and other deposits are floating by in the bloodstream and they kind of attach. And then that plaque, the, the scab becomes a plaque that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so if that blood vessel is member is a circle, and if you, if you're out to skin, you don't care if the scab's this big or this big, but when you're in a blood vessel, 
if that scab gets bigger and bigger, what's happening to the blood vessel, right? So the blood vessel becomes smaller and where the blood actually can flow is actually smaller and smaller. So think about it then if your blood vessel, uh, you're exercising and you need, and you have all this plaque and you need to dilate open, but your blood vessel cells, it won't do it because it's full of plaque. It won't open. So you've got all this, you have so little space to get the blood. So then what happens is, is the blood doesn't get to where it needs to get in the heart and you get something called angina or, um, and angina is when you, the, is, is when the blood isn't getting to the right part of the heart. So that is, um, what angina is. And then if that plaque, if it closes off the blood vessel completely, then that will cause a heart attack. And that can happen in a couple of different ways. But the one people most often hear about is when the plaque is smaller like this, and then your body doesn't really notice it. But at times, what, what can happen is, is that it can become inflamed or irritated, and then that plaque can rupture. And so like maybe a 40% blockage will rupture and then it acutely closes the blood vessel. That's an acute heart attack. And that affected, that's affected many people recently in particular. And people often wonder, well, how did that person get so sick? But we know this from Carrie Fisher, um, who was Princess Leia and James Gandolfini. Um, there've been many care, uh, actors in the recent past that have had acute sudden death. And that's because they had that blood vessel that maybe didn't cause them so much trouble when it was like this, but then inflammation triggered that plaque to rupture, which then closed off the whole blood vessel, which then caused the acute heart attack. And when one blood flow doesn't get to one part of the heart, the heart gets unhappy and stressed, um, which can cause somebody to die suddenly. So why should we think about this? Well, this is a problem that is going to continue to be, a, this is going to be something that's going to be pervasive and, and, we're seeing it in younger and younger people. So I had a patient in the ICU a couple of months ago that was 29 years old who had a massive heart attack. He's 29 years old, massive heart attack. And his only risk factor was poor diet quality and obesity. He wasn't a smoker. Um, he was a diabetic. And I think it just reminds us is that, uh, that the things that you do your entire life matter when it comes to heart disease. And it's important to not only raise yourself healthy, but raise your kids healthy. I, I hear so much of the time, oh, you know, they're just kids, they'll be fine. But the data doesn't support that. In fact, we know that if you look at autopsies from kids who died at six and 18, um, they already have fatty streaks for the six-year-old and plaque for the 18-year-old. And so it's a whole, it's a dynamic process. Heart disease is a dynamic process that starts when you're very young. So eating well, moving and making good lifestyle choices is essential your whole life. So should young people worry about heart disease? Absolutely. Uh, and mostly because when you're young and in your 15, 20, you're not going to have a heart attack. That's not the problem that we're worried about. We're more worried about the behaviors that you start and then the buildup that you are creating at that young age that then leads to problems when you're later in life. Hmm. Wow. Um, it's, it's wild too, how many, um, I mean, you see fatty streaks, like you were saying in younger and younger people, and then a bunch of liver transplants are starting to happen in younger and younger folks from fatty liver disease because of diet. And so you started to touch on lifestyle factors in a younger age that can help prevent some of these heart diseases in the future. So what are some of your foundations to preventative cardiology? So um, the first and foremost thing is you got to pick and choose right or well uh, what to eat. And so there is no question in 2022, based on the studies that we have, that plant forward eating is the optimal eating pattern. So 
if you wanted to go into more details, we could, whether it should, it, people often ask, well, should it be Mediterranean? Should it be plant-based or should, could it be paleo keto or, I mean, sorry, plant-based keto? Um, like where does it, where does it fit? I like to people emphasize to people that at the end of the day, it should be plant-based whether there's a little bit of meter in there. Okay. Well, we could talk about that, but it should have primarily plants. And I think that that's a very important thing to understand that nobody should be eating ketogenic and that people should not be eating these very low carbohydrate diet diets. They do not are not supported by the data. And I know that that's an, um, that creates a lot of, uh, Twitter anger when I say stuff like that, but that's what the data shows. So plant forward eating is optimal eating pattern. And what that means though, is you know, not only do we want you to eat plants, but we want you to eat the healthy plants. So I always remind people that Oreos, for instance, are plant-based. So well, we're not trying to get people to eat Oreos, right? Or Coca-Cola or French fries that are made in the fryer, even at McDonald's are actually plant-based French fries now that they've removed all the lard from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so those are all plant-based now. So um, well, we're not trying to eat those kind of foods, right? We're trying to eat those healthy plant-based foods, which is things like beans and loads and loads of greens and nuts and seeds. Um, uh, and these are the kind of foods that we want people to be eating sort of on a de- daily basis, not the instant foods, not the refined grains, not the put it in the microwave and it'll be ready in three minutes kind of meals, because that's actually a very unhealthy food. So we want people to focus on what they put in their body. That's very, very important. But then also the amount they put in their body is important. But typically, if people are eating mostly plant-based, then they're going to find that their bodies are really good at regulating um, by just listening to your body. And that does take time and effort. But over time, if you start eliminating the sort of processed sugars and sugars in your body, your body will tell you when you're hungry and not hungry. And sometimes we just have to learn to listen to that. And again, that's something that I talk about a lot in my with my patients is because I deal with, I work with a lot of patients who struggle with obesity. And, you know, we talk a lot about sort of those, those, those physical cues that teach us how to eat. So it's about eating healthy plant-based foods. It's about eating what our, only what our body needs and not eating in excess. It's about movement. And most people don't realize, you know, we live it overall in America and, and really in the world, we've become a very sedentary population. Most of us sit behind a desk eight, you know, eight to 10 hours a day sometimes for many people. And that sedentary lifestyle is associated with inflammation, ex, um, weight, weight gain, prediabetes. Uh, and um, those are all risk factors for heart disease. So even moving an extra 2000 steps a day makes an impact in your overall risk. So I often tell people, look, don't at lunchtime, don't sit, you know, you're tired because you've been sitting in front of your computer. And so sometimes people are like, I don't care. I just want to eat my pasta or whatever I brought. Um, and I'm just tired and waiting for this day to end. But I often remind people to try to find a, a group of people to go walking with. And maybe at lunchtime before you even touch your meal, um, go for a quick walk, even if it's five or 10 minutes, uh, it's amazingly gratifying. And so something I encourage. So movement, so that would be third movement, really sleep. Most people don't realize the importance of sleep. Uh, I used to pride myself on being like a four hour a night sleeper uh, or pulling in all night. Yes, right. <laughs> And so I'd be like, ah, I pulled an all nighter in medical school. And then, you know, I, I, you know, and oh, and I aced the test. Like that was something I should be this badge of honor. But the truth is, is that that isn't a badge. And if anything, all we do is slowly just destroy 
um, I'll, I always tell people you destroy your armor when you remove your sleep. Um, and so there's data to show that sleeping under six hours and over 10 hours is um, detrimental to health. Um, so we really want to be sleeping, especially for somebody as sort of an average adult to sleep between seven and nine hours per night. Uh, and most people just don't. Uh, there's so many things, optimism and hope and having positivity, um, movement, uh, stress reduction and using mind body techniques. So these are all things that we need to be doing uh, on a regular basis to keep our hearts healthy and our bodies healthy. Thank you for explaining those to us. Um, and you had a really, really wonderful talk at the Regenerative Healthcare Conference in Pennsylvania with amazing studies, but um, specifically focused on nutrition. So I would love to also just touch on the question of why are plants so good for us? Like uh, phytonutrients, microbiome, like why, why do you think that they're, they're so healthy and necessary for us to, to consume? Yeah, so... So I guess the question is, what isn't uh, healthy about a plant? Um, because plants, I mean, first and foremost, gosh, it's hard to put them in order, but I, I guess I would say is think of a plant as, let's make it as simple and say that it's loaded in fiber and fiber, all your plants are loaded in fiber, especially the unprocessed ones. And why is that good? Well, fiber is the key to so many things. So when you eat foods that are high in fiber, not only we, those are lo usually low glycemic, so they're not going to trigger you to feel hungry. So you'll actually have more satiety and people lose weight. When you have loads and loads of fiber, you have really good bowel movements. And people often say, um, oh, I only have a bowel movement every two or three days. That's my normal. Actually, that's not normal. That's not a normal thing. And uh, that means you're probably low in fiber. So number three is the mo is the the reason that that constipation actually happens is because you have unhealthy gut bugs and so the microbiome which you mentioned or is is the microbiota are actually the bugs that live inside your gut and really all over your skin and we have healthy bugs and we have an unhealthy bugs and the healthy bugs are associated with healthy life and the unhealthy bugs unfortunately are associated with unhealthy uh, and chronic illness and we know that when you eat lots of fiber then you are you are replenishing your bugs in your gut with healthy bugs. So lots and lots of fiber. Then there, as you pointed out, plant nutrients or phytonutrients. So you can count on your plants to have um, all the vitamins that are essential to our body to grow are all sitting in our plants. If you if you think about a plant in terms of the way a plant is grown, if a plant is grown well and it's it has to fight against toxins that are in the soil and are all around it, and things like like for instance, garlic has saponins in it, and saponins' job are to kill off all of the uh, toxins or invaders to that plant. And then when we eat that garlic, we have the benefit of all the work that that's those saponins have already done. So it, it's like these foods are living through us. So, you know, there's fiber, there's plant nutrients, there's the vitamins and nutrients, and then there's all the defenses that the plants provide us. But there's also so many other things. People don't realize that you get a lot of your amino acids from your plants. For instance, if you eat lentils and rice, that's a complete protein. Um, so my kids always laugh when they pay, take a bowl of dal, which is something I eat a lot of, which is Indian, um, Indian style lentils. And then they put it over rice. I go, you know, that's a complete protein. And so now they sort of joke and they'll walk by me and mom and they'll say, mom, complete protein. <laughs> I mean, we're such nerds at our house. So, you know, it's, um, 
you know, so then you're getting all this protein from your foods. Uh, like I could go on and on. I mean, the plants are, I mean, think about soy, think about let beans, think about the greens. Those are all plant sources and plant-based foods. And there is uh, no shortage of benefits from all of them. Oh, that's so wonderful. And <laughs> how old are your kids now? My kids are uh, 11, 13, and 15. Wow. Learning about complete proteins already. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. They could, they could, my kids could tell you, um, they know more than they probably want to know. <laughs> and my, my youngest daughter is like, well, the difference between HDL and LDL is because they've heard me do enough talks or they often are in the audience. I take my kids a lot to places. They're often in audiences or they help me do my editing of my things that I don't know how to do or whatever. And they'll do, and they'll say, you know, I noticed that the blood, you know, it's funny, like my youngest daughter, um, heard me, um, heard me talking about blood pressure. And she's like, mom, is, did that person do their blood pressure correctly? And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Like, she's like, I don't think they're holding the cuff right. And I was like, okay, let's go. Oh my gosh. I love that. (laughs) You know, I think the thing is about children, people often ask me, um, how to raise kids in, in this world. And, and, you know, look, I I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I just sort of, we're all kind of doing the best we can. But one of the things I do not do is I do not dictate how (laughs) they eat. In other words, I know that that sounds odd as somebody who's nutrition and lifestyle based, but I cook a a certain way in my house and the foods that that will enter our house are going to be foods that I, because I do the cooking, I do the grocery shopping. That's going to be the stuff that's going to enter our house. And um, the stuff that I prepare is what they're going to eat, right? And so when they ask for foods that are outside of what I'm comfortable feeding them, I'll say, well, look, you know, this, these aren't healthy foods and I'll explain to them. And so my kids suffer, for instance, from too much information. And so I just that, but that's sort of how I believe that I do my best work is when I teach them by just explaining to them the choices and why do we make the choices we make, they get to go out and do whatever they want. So people often ask me, do your kids eat chicken? I was like, they have in the past, um, they don't like it. And now they're all plant-based, but when they were seven years old and they would go to a birthday party and there was whatever popcorn chicken and they picked it up and ate it, I would say nothing because that I don't think is my job. And I think that raising my kids to make good, healthy choices is my, is my job, but, uh, not to then dictate how, how, the, how they make those choices. Mm. Empowering people with information. <laughs> yeah, more like I said, maybe more than <laughs> they want to know. <laughs> so, um, as I had said before, your presentation at re- the Regenerative Healthcare Conference was amazing and very thorough. Um, and I would love for you to just walk us through some of the most exciting new studies that you've come across that support certain t- dietary interventions or lifestyle interventions for for the prevention of heart disease. Sure. So I think the most compelling um, study that came out, I think was in like 2017 uh, by Amit Kara, and it was published in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine. And it's a genetics and lifestyle study. And I love that study because it reminds us that your genetics don't dictate your future. So, you know, we all have the genes we have, like we can't, I can't change that I had the gene for rheumatoid arthritis, which is the chronic illness that I have, I can't change that. Um, where you can't sort of change some of those things that you're getting, you get. And as I tell my kids, it's not what you get, but it's how you choose to respond to it. That makes you who you are. And 
it's that I have that illness. So I'm going to make lifestyle choices to handle that illness. And I, I like people. And so does that actually matter? And so what Amit Kara did in that study is he looked at patients and he said, okay, if you have, um, let's look at, you know, your risk factors. So people who have a high genetic risk versus a low genetic risk. So high genetic risk would mean like if you uh, had a family member, a, a, an immediate family member, often people tell you about cousins and um, those are important if there's a lot of them, but typically we're specifically focused on immediate family members. So um, if you had a father or mother who died of a heart attack, you know, or had a heart attack or a heart event, be, you know, before 55 in general is considered sort of premature. And we, that definitely something that puts you at higher risk. So he looked at people who had that sort of higher genetic risk and then the people who had low genetic risk. So these are people who live maybe, um, till a hundred, they never got heart disease. Um, and they just have really good genes. You know, people love to talk about, oh, I have really good genes. So, so then he looked at sort of if they had a, a favorable and unfavorable lifestyle. And then he looked at the amount of calcium those kind of people would have in their heart. So remember, that calcium in your heart is not something we want. And that means that as plaque hardens and ages, it will calcify and harden. So we, we, if you have soft plaque versus hard plaque, you prefer the hard plaque because you want things to harden and calcify so it, it isn't susceptible to rupture. At the same time, we prefer no plaque, right? So then we would prefer no, no soft plaque or no hard plaque. Okay. So the amount of calcium you have in your heart is associated with higher mortality. More calcium in your heart arteries means more, uh, more like um, prima, uh, increased risk of mortality of dying. So if you have an unhealthy lifestyle, but a, um, a good, good genetic risk, so you are good genetic risk, but an unhealthy lifestyle, you will have double the amount of calcium than in your heart than somebody who has low genetic risk and good lifestyle. 50%. So like that's a number that you really should be find impactful. Similarly, if you look at people who have a high genetic risk, so their risk because of their family of having heart, had heart disease at a young age, and you look at people who had unfavorable lifestyle versus favorable, the people who had a favorable lifestyle had 50% less calcium in their heart, 50%. And that's no, that is not a small number. So I love that study because I think it reminds us that yes, your genetics are a component of everyone's health, um, but your lifestyle is pivotal. It is, it is super, super important. Um, there are studies that have come out that really show that eating uh, a Mediterranean plant forward diet is optimal. So um, there was the original PREDIMED study that came out, which showed that eating Mediterranean style compared to a standard Western diet decrease your risk of heart events, strokes, and death. But then the subset analysis that was done looked at the amount of vegetarians or the most pro-vegetarian uh, people were. So they were eating Mediterranean. The people who were eating the most plant-based of that Mediterranean diet actually did the best. So the people who ate the most plants did the best versus the Mediterranean less plants did the worst. Uh, and so I think those two studies are uh, really important. I mean, there are thousands. Um, there was one that was done, not thousands, I wish there were thousands, truthfully, of nutrition studies. But there was another study done in NYU where they put patients um, on a plant-based diet after they'd been in the cath lab. And they compared it from an American Heart Association diet to a whole food plant-based diet. And they were able to show a significant reduction in inflammation by eating the plant-based diet over the American Heart Association diet. We just finished a really cool study uh, that I can't tell you the de details of, but the 
the, um, I can bait your interest, which is that, um, we put patients who had a risk for heart disease and we did the study where we put all of them on a plant-based diet. And then we randomized them to either high amounts of olive oil, and then we put them on that for four weeks. And then we put them on a low olive oil diet for four weeks. And we're compared how that patient did compared to themselves. So remember your person, the, you are your own control. Um, and we are looking at stool. We're looking at urine for adherence. We're looking at inflammatory markers. We're looking at lipid markers. So a lot of exciting stuff hopefully will come from that study. And we're analyzing the data right now. So those are some good studies uh, to look out for, read about, to hopefully motivate you to make good lifestyle choices. You've baited my interest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so how is the microbiome affected to our heart health? So remember that if you, if you have a good, healthy microbiome, everything is healthy. So I think that that's very important. If you have healthy gut bugs, everything is healthy. But remember also that when you have an unhealthy gut, then you don't metabolize cholesterol well, you keep it more in. Like for instance, think of it this way. When you eat more fiber, your cholesterol goes down. So when you eat less fiber, it won't go down. So then also think about it in terms of you have these junctions in your gut called tight junctions, and their job is to keep all the toxins from getting into your bloodstream. But when you eat poor foods that your body doesn't like, those junctions can break, and then you actually bring those toxins into your bloodstream, which triggers inflammation, which can then trigger illness. And so when you're looking for those triggers for why a plaque ruptures, inflammation is the key there. So if you have a healthy gut, bu healthy gut bugs, you have decreased inflammation. So, you know, just having more fiber will decrease your cholesterol. Um, it'll bring you, if you eat more plants, you'll bring down your blood pressure. If you eat the, if you have the healthy gut flora, you have lower blood pressure. Amazing. And then you also uh, host a podcast, Seeking Voices of Health, Healing and Hope. What's what's your goal with this podcast? And I also love that you bring in hope into medicine. So why why is hope so important? You know, it's interesting. Um, I started that podcast on a whim, actually, um, mostly because I think everybody's so darn sad. And everyone I talk to is sad. I don't think I ever hear somebody say, I'm just anything, but I'm so busy or there's no time or I'm so down or, you know, I, I have a survey that I give in my clinic and I, the last question is, are you happy? And nobody's happy. And so I started that podcast kind of on a whim to bring people some joy and hope and maybe just for myself to hear people's stories. And because I think that we do better as a society because we're a communal society and we appreciate community when we hear people's stories and it makes us feel motivated and invigorated to change. It makes us feel like, gosh, if that person can do it, I can do it. Uh, it makes people sort of feel like they, it, it provides people with that hope. And why is hope important? You know, arguably hope is something that's most important because, you know, I was having a conversation with Jane and Anna Esselstyn uh, a week or two ago and, and Anne was saying, well, gosh, you know, you should just, you just have to eat the food and, um, and you'll be fine. And I was explaining to her, I said that so many patients that I see, they actually lack so much in hope. Um, and so if you lack hope, why would you feel like you wanted to eat healthy food? And so sometimes what I work on with my clinic is in my clinic is I don't even get to the food part in my first visit because we're working so much on just hope and, and bringing back sort of positivity, self-love. And there's so much data on the power of positivity now that shows that just 
keeping keeping yourself positive and having hopefulness makes you make better health choices, makes you move more. And it's it's all a circle. Right? If you if you feel more positive, you make more positive choices. And then those positive choices make you feel better, which then feed back that positivity. And so uh, or I would argue in some ways that hope is probably the most important thing that I bring to people with those podcasts. So, you know, I, um, I, I have done three or four of them that I have not posted yet. I've been negligent on posting. So I'll get a few of those out there over the next couple of weeks, but I really, um, I know some people tell me, well, um, those, those podcasts are off brand for you, uh, which I find to be a very funny comment because, <laughs> Um, is my brand, my, is my brand, which is a confusing thing to have to think I have a brand. Uh, I never think of myself that way, but is, you know, am I just a nutrition person or, uh, and I, I think that, I don't know even what that means. I mean, I feel like that I want to bring people hope and I want them to sort of feel motivated about their health and about how to heal their bodies. And if we talk about people's sadnesses and how they overcame, and it's not about nutrition, I'm okay with that. Because when I hear those stories, I think, okay, I got this. Uh, and, you know, people think when they see me or when they see some, some people that are out in the world that are sort of public, per, public personas, they think that those public personas and, you know, social media is notorious for this, right? Um, you see one view of somebody. So you think that uh, Julia Roberts or uh, Reese Witherspoon, or I, I'm bringing up names that I, I people I'm just off the cuff thinking of. But you think that they don't have problems, you know, or that they don't feel sadness or because you see this one view or you see Reese Witherspoon. I saw him recently and she's promoting a book on her Reese book club or whatever. And you think, oh, God, she's got everything. She's got a whole life ahead of her and she's doing everything right. And she's happy. But is that really true? And in no disrespect to Reese, or <laughs> I, I mean, they may be always very happy, but nobody is always happy. Right. And so, you know, there's we all have our baggage and we all have things that bring us down and. I think that it's important to show people the ugly parts as well as the good, healthy parts. And I think that what social media has left us with, unfortunately, is nobody showing people their ugly parts. And I think that that creates a lot of sadness and more uh, of the problem of uh, stigmatizing sort of people who are imperfect. And the truth is, we're all imperfect. So why not own it? Mm. I love that. We're we're more than just a brand. We're all complex human beings. <laughs> complex human beings, absolutely. <laughs> um, I was actually I recorded a podcast yesterday with Rob Hopkins, who wrote "What If to What Is," uh, and it's all about creativity and imagining the future. And he was saying that you can't have a future without imagining it first, and that goes along with hope. If you're not yeah. hopeful for the future, if you don't see Beautiful. the future. There's no reason to make changes for your future to be better. So I really, really love that you you emphasize that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then that leads actually to our last question. Okay. We ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Oh, the future is bright. Uh, the future is bright. Um, because, you know, you know, I, I think that it's very easy with the way the world is right now to think that we're doomed. Uh, the inflation rates are, if you, if you let watch your New York times feed or whatever feed that comes up on your phone, it'll say the inflation rates are going up. So-and-so the war in Ukraine is not getting better. 
um, climate, which is, you know, weighs heavily on many of us is uh, a real problem. And in 50 years, we're not going to have any harvestable land, which is true. But despite all of that, I choose to believe that the future is bright because I think that we are, as you pointed out, we are multifaceted, creative, interesting individuals who, when needed, will come together and figure out a solution to all of these problems. And we just have to believe that we can do it. We have to have hope that we can and we will. And so I do feel the future is bright. I do think that um, we live in a world of imperfection and a lot of imperfect people. And instead of sort of being embarrassed about that, we need to own it and get every day a little bit better. And I think if we do that in our own lives, uh, as we tackle the problems of the world that are significant right now, we will get better uh, and we're going to be okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Agarwal. This was a really great conversation. I learned a lot. You're really, really good at explaining things. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Good, good, good. I'm glad. Yeah. And thank you for spending time with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Um, If you ever need anything, please let me know. I I really do mentor a lot of uh, women in particular, but I don't mean to pull out that I don't mentor men. um, But I do, I do believe that my job now, as I've gotten older, is to move women forward. And so if there's ever anything you need that I can help you with, I'm happy to support you in that. Thank you so much. And thank you for paving the way to more creative solutions for health. (laughs) Well, we're all doing it. So your (laughs) podcast is also part of that solution. Thank you.